Welcome to Out of the Blank. another episode of out of the blank podcast we have a special guest don it's a pleasure to have you on the show can you please introduce yourself to everyone out there listening hey well thanks a lot robbie uh, my name is don latin l-a-t-t-i-n donlatin.com is my website and um, i'm an author and a journalist uh written several books about the so-called psychedelic revival over the last uh 10 or 12 years i was a reporter for many years at the uh, san francisco chronicle uh covering religion spirituality psychology uh, kind of religion broadly defined as we do here in San Francisco. <laughs> so so how'd you get interested in psychedelics? Well, you know, like many baby boomers, <laughs> I came of age in the late 60s and early 70s. Uh, I, you know, I took some acid in high school in the late 60s as a teenager and had some interesting experiences, nothing that dramatic. And then I, I came up to Berkeley um, to go to school in 1972 and had some just revelatory, mind-blowing LSD trips uh, on the coast of Big Sur. And then I had some kind of a bad trip from Central Casting, some horrific trips uh, uh, in the middle of a hunting lodge. And they, they say be careful about set and setting with psychedelics, you know, being a safe place. Well, I had a bad trip because I was I was kind of a hippie and I was surrounded by rednecks hunting and shooting off rifles. So that's a, <laughs> that's a recipe for a bad trip, right? Uh, so anyway, I, I, you know, I, like many, many people my age, uh, I did a lot of experimentation with psychedelics, you know, as a, as a young person. So that's how I originally got interested in it. And, and I did have, you know, some very profound, mystical, revelatory experiences. And I always was kind of wondering, well, what's, what's going on with that? And it did spark an interest in meditation and kind of religion and spirituality. And it's one of the reasons I wound up kind of specializing in that as a reporter, not just writing about psychedelics, but writing about religion, spirituality, psychology as, as a journalist. So um, and then eventually I wrote uh, the first of three books uh, on this. This is one that's called The Harvard Psychedelic Club, which came out in 2010. So it's about 12 years old by HarperCollins. Um, and that's a group biography of four guys who came together in, at uh, around Harvard in 1960. Uh, Timothy Leary, Richard Alpert, who be, went on to become the spiritual teacher Ram Dass, uh, Andrew Weil, the holistic health and integrative medicine guru, and uh, Houston Smith, the professor of religion and philosophy. Uh, so it's a that, that book, which did fairly well, um, really looked at the whole psychedelic 60s through the story of these four guys. And then after that, I've done a couple other books. Uh, I want to ask about uh, those four guys. Do you think they really unlock something with this mystical drug that everyone talks about unlocking your I've never taken it. I've never taken acid, never taken LSD. Um, I feel like I would have a horrible trip, but I've, I've heard great experiences from people and it had me looking into the history of it, obviously getting involved with the government a little bit as well, too. But then when I came across Timothy Leary's name, and he was kind of like this guy that felt like he should give the key to everyone to be able to unlock this potential out of this drug as well, too. And he was also the person that said the set and setting um, kind of phrase. And it, it had me wondering who this character was and knowing more about him and also the other people that were involved. Yeah, I'm not exactly sure that Leary, Leary certainly didn't come up with the idea of the importance of set and setting. He may have been the one to use those words, but I'm not even sure about that. But Anyway, I mean, Leary gets the credit and the blame for a lot of things <laughs> that don't really, not really appropriate. But, uh, but yeah, Leary is a, was a fascinating, was a fascinating character. Um, you know, I call him the trickster in, in in the book. I have like archetypes for the four characters. So Leary is the trickster, you know, and um, he was a brilliant psychologist. I mean, before he ever discovered psychedelics, I mean, he had. Uh, you know, a very successful and well-received book on personality assessment. That was his, like, as a psychologist, that was his background. But uh, he was working in the 50s at a psychiatric clinic at Kaiser Hospital, actually in Oakland, not that far from where I live, 
Um, and he determined that, you know, traditional talk therapy really wasn't working that well for people. He did a little study of, you know, patients who were waiting to have be treated and those who got treated uh, at the clinic and sort of lost his faith in traditional, you know, Freudian or, or, or behavioral psychology and was kind of ready to find something new when a friend turned him on to mushrooms in the summer of 1960 on a vacation in Mexico. Uh, and he had a very profound experience, you know, sitting around a swimming pool with a bunch of friends and <laughs> kind of rolling around with one of his many girlfriends at the time, you know, I mean, it was like a party, really, it wasn't, it wasn't a controlled <laughs> clinical trial or anything, it was basically a party around a pool uh, in Mexico at a resort. Um, but anyway, he, he had a, he had a profound religious experience, and he was not he was brought up Catholic, you know, he had a very troubled childhood. So he didn't, he didn't think himself as a religious person at all, right? But he had this religious experience, which happens to a lot of people on psychedelics. And he became convinced that LSD was going to first revolutionize uh, uh, psychology, psychiatry, and uh, eventually change the world and embarked on a crusade that made him one of the most infamous characters of the 1960s. I mean, when it comes to a religious experience, I mean, it... I definitely understand it better than talk therapy. I mean, everything I've ever heard is like going inside someone's mind and trying to unlock something. And people don't even know that they have demons, that they end up finding their demons on this trip and, you know, befriending these demons. I've had plenty of friends explain their trips. It was an area about almost a year ago where I was really astounded by just people's experiences. I'm going to ask you what one of yours is at one point in this show, but it's just interesting to see its kind of growth from there. But it, had me looking into especially recently was the war on drugs and trying to understand what this was and learning more about the hippie movement i mean this is a whole time my generation knows nothing about yeah 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 well uh richard nixon famously called leary the most dangerous man in america um i mean he became kind of like the self-appointed high priest of the psychedelic counterculture <laughs> he actually used that word himself high priest right <laughs> and uh so, yeah, I mean, he very quickly, I mean, there's a, it's, it's a long story, but he and Richard Albrecht got kicked out of Harvard uh, when their research, to, to put it simply, their research project kind of became more of a party than a <laughs> research project. And they were giving undergrad, they, they were giving uh, psilocybin and LSD to undergraduates, which they had agreed to not do. All, all the research subjects were supposed to be graduate students or, or, or other people. So anyway, they got kicked out of Harvard and they were ready to move on anyway. And um, so he became kind of a lightning rod, you know, for the, not just for the psychedelic counterculture, but for the larger counterculture, the political counterculture, you know, the anti-war movement, the civil rights movement, the beginnings of the environmental movement. I mean, he, not that Leary or Alpert were all that political in a traditional way, but what can happen with these drugs is they can just really expand your idea of what reality is or what is possible. And they, they really make you question reality and question authority. And that's what Leary was all about is questioning, questioning authority. You know, his, his mantra, you know, turn on, tune in, drop out, you know, it was like drop out of the system, man, you know, drop out of the rat race, the consumerist materialist culture of the 1950s. I mean, the subtitle of Harvard Psychedelic Club is, you know, uh, what is it? How Timothy Leary, R Richard Alpert, Houston Smith, and Andrew Rao killed the 50s and ushered in a new age in America. So, so they were very, I mean, they weren't obviously the only ones doing this, but uh, they were also uh, kind of shameless self-promoters. So they, they really courted the media, got a lot of media attention and became kind of the, the two symbols of the psychedelic counterculture, which the government did find, find, find dangerous. Uh, on a lot of levels. What happened with the fear of it? Like the government seeing it dangerous, is that when they decided to kind of blast it and label it as this like horrible thing in a sense where people, I mean, there are obviously people, a lot of people that took it, a lot of people that were hippies that were obviously sparking up protests, a lot of activism, but then there became this like fear and kind of demonization of it as well. Like if you're, you don't want to live up in, in a dope society is usually what I always hear people say. Yeah, well, you know, on the one hand, there actually were a lot of people, uh, you know, a minority of people who took these drugs in the 1670s who did have like, you know, very difficult and and negative experiences and maybe even had like, you know, psychotic breaks. I mean, these drugs are not harmless. I mean, they're not addictive drugs, but they can definitely uh, cause 
ongoing psychiatric, psychological problems for people who aren't ready for them and don't have the right kind of guidance and help. So it wasn't that there was no reason to be concerned about this explosion in interest of, you know, of LSD and, you know, the faintly out here in San Francisco, which was even wilder than what they were doing in Boston. You had like Ken Kesey and the, the acid tests, you know, where they were, you know, basically putting LSD in the punch and, you know, having parties. And most people had a wonderful time, you know. I'd never <laughs> so, heard about that. That's great. Wait, well, I've heard about oh, Operation yeah, read, Midnight read Climax. That, uh, the classic book on that is Tom Wolf, uh, The Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test. You got us. That's that. that. I, I've heard it like Operation Midnight. So-called new journalism. So. Operation Midnight Climax I knew happened in San Francisco, which was dropping LSD and like John's drinks and stuff of that sort. Right. No, that was something that was earlier. And that was that. Yeah, that was a, that was an army a U.S. Uh, intelligence agency uh, little experiment. No, th this was not the government. This was Ken Kesey, who was like a very famous writer at the time. He wrote Sometimes a Great Notion and One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Uh, so he was, and he had this band called the Merry Pranksters, uh, which was right between the kind of beatnik scene and the hippie scene, you know, like in the early 60s. Uh, and they had this, you know, day glow bus. And, you know, they, they sort of, a lot of the like stereotypes of the 60s, you know, come out of the sort of merry pranksters and what Kesey was, was, was up to. My, my point was that, you know, th there were a lot, in a sense, the scene was a lot wild. The psychedelic scene was a lot wilder out in San Francisco than it was back in Boston where Leary and, Leary and Alpert were, were, were working. But, but, you know, yeah, I mean, it wasn't just LSD. I mean, the control, I mean, Nixon pushed through the Controlled Substances Act of 1970, which upped penalties on a lot of drugs and, and, and criminalized a lot of drugs for the first time, and also increased penalties for like simple marijuana possession, right? And, and there's a famous quote, I, I can't, I'd have to look in the book to get the exact quote, but it was uh, Ehrlichman, one of, one of Nixon's top aides, like I think chief of staff or something, who basically confessed years later, you know, like, well, we couldn't go after black people for supporting the civil rights movement or, or protesting. We couldn't go after the hippies and, and the new left uh, anti-war demonstration people for, for protesting. That's legal. But we could go after their common pleasure, <laughs> which was, you know, marijuana, you know, and psychedelics. So he admitted that it was really part of a political campaign against these groups. It wasn't I, that, the, well, that the, what was fueling this was not that these drugs are inherently dangerous, even though they can be, you know, uh, I that's my point. I said that and someone was like, that's conspiracy talk. I was like, what? It's like the whole war on drugs. If you're like reading it and looking at it, it's like, why are they going after this thing so hard? It wasn't. No, it's not might... conspiracy at all. I mean, there's a quote, there's a quote from Ehrlichman who was like <laughs> an architect of it, it, sort of admitting it, you know, of course that's what we were doing, you know? I mean, all drugs are made, I mean, Drug laws are so crazy. And by drugs, let's include alcohol, right? Which is like a, probably the most destructive drug in this culture, right? Maybe right with opiates, but alcohol is right up there. You know, like prohibition, right? Back in the 20s, a lot of that was a reaction against like Irish people and Italians who were considered like, you know, uh, you know, sort of outsiders or deviants in American culture at the time. People forget this, right? Well, it, create, it created bootleggers and then they and, even and, and, poisoned yeah, alcohol. A lot of the, a lot of the, the feeling prohibition was this idea that, you know, these, uh, these Irish people are drinking too much and they're not going to work and blah, blah, you know, there, there, there's all, and then in, in the eighties, you had the uh, laws against after the whole rave scene, people taking MDMA ecstasy, Molly called, I guess now during the rave scene, you know, they, they outlawed that because they didn't like the, it's, 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 it's about the, it's about who's taking the drugs more than how dangerous they really are. You know, it's always been that way, all the way back to prohibition. Well, even when they outlaw like something like LSD or something like that, and they have this full on war against, you know, these drugs, you get to this point where people are like, well, what the hell is going on? Like you had major people that were musicians. I had John Potash on the show that talked about, you know, all these musicians that are being activists are talking about drugs and all these types of things. I mean, they saw something, they realized something and they're sitting there shouting for peace. And you start getting into this question where now it just sparks up the curiosity. Why is the government trying to ban that? And now you want to take the drug yourself and see what everyone else is seeing. Right, right. And of course, the other thing that was happening, I mean, uh, sort of prior to this in the 1950s, you know, the government itself was doing a lot of uh, very nefarious experimentation, you know, with with LSD uh, on, um, I mean, they, 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 I mean, I, one of the first stories I wrote as a young reporter uh, at the San Francisco Examiner, you know, which was back in 1977, 
my first big banner headline, you know, story in the newspaper was about, uh, uh, it was, it didn't revealed, but there were these uh, US Army intelligence uh, drug tests, LS psychedelic tests back in the 50s and early 60s. And there was a, a an African American soldier who was uh, experimented on in, in France, he was stationed in Europe, given a massive doses of LSD and basically tortured or interrogated in a very hostile way, maybe not exactly tortured, but when you give someone a high dose of LSD and you try to drive them crazy, that's psychological torture, right? And they were doing experiments basically to see if LSD could be used as a interrogation tool, you know, for prisoners of war. And and there were all kinds of crazy experiments, like to spray it on, to spray LSD on <laughs> enemy troops as like a weapon of mass distraction, you know, rather than destruction. Uh, there was all kinds of you know crazy stuff going on that the government was sponsoring, much worse than anything that MK Larry Ultra. or Hufford or Ken Kesey were up to, right? And so a lot of the, the the crackdown on psychedelic research in the in the late sixties and seventies was the government kind of worrying about trying to clean up their own house, right? It wasn't just it wasn't just just that they were going after the psychedelic counterculture, uh, because what people don't kind of remember is th all this uh, information about what was going on in the 50s didn't come out until the 70s. It was, wasn't known until the 70s. After Watergate, <clears throat> there were uh, these hearings in the Senate about all the secret kind of government activities on all kinds of levels, right? Uh, you know, surveillance and, and including the LSD. So so that's that's why how when I stumbled across this story in 1977, it was that era, you know, it was the post Watergate kind of let's clean up the government kind of crusade, you know, Jimmy Carter was president, you know, it was it, uh, that that was that era. So so people, you know, people will blame Timothy Leary, you know, the excesses of Timothy Leary for the shutting down the research into psychedelics, the beneficial uses of psychedelics. And he's part of it. But as much of it was what I think the government, you know, trying to kind of cover up or 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 repent for its its sins in this area. I'm glad you mentioned that because uh, usually when I say it, people go, that's conspiracy. I bring up MKUltra all the time. I bring up a lot of the government's uses. I mean, there's a, I have documents that'll tell you that they can revive old methods of LSD interrogations to use on people that were like, you know, caught for covert action or something like that. And it's just like, yeah, this is a really kind of like weird dark part that really doesn't get talked about was the, L the government buying up all LSD and then there's these weird tie-ins where it's like, why are they just out? Like, I would thought that they would have communicated with Timothy Leary at a point, not like a double agent type thing, but just reached out to him like, hey, because if you look at like Joyon West, who was involved in MKUltra, and you look at Sidney Gottlieb, who I had Stephen Kinzer talk about on the show, um, he wrote a book called Poisoner in Chief. They're, they're from Harvard or Yale, and they're psychologists. And I'm like, that fit Timothy Leary's description perfectly. And it had me just interested, like, has education systems or just just systems in general, normal stuff that's to an average civilian always had this kind of influence or this experimentation on these types of drugs? Uh, I'm not exactly sure what you mean by the question, but um, so I'm so what's so um, the has there I always mean, been like influence from psychedelic drugs and like I mean just experiments on them, not just government stuff, but I mean just classical schools as well. You know, too. I mean, yeah. So LSD was basically uh, I was synth synthesized by this you know Swiss chemist Albert Hoffman in the late 30s. He didn't really discover what he had on his hands until you know the, towards the end of World War II, right, in the 1940s. And this was an amazingly powerful psychedelic drug. I mean, they already had like, you know, mescaline had been synthesized. So there were psychedelics, you know, of course, there were, you know, it's a long history of, of sacred plant medicines and indigenous culture and all that. That's something else. But it was really the discovery of LSD by Hoffman, but, you know, in the, in the mid 1940s. And very soon after that, you know, I mean, all kinds of things were happening simultaneously. I mean, Sandoz, which was a, you know, it's a big drug company, right? They were looking for some way to market this and some how to use this drug. So they were sending free samples out to psychologists and psychiatrists all over the world. You know, the, 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 the rules were much looser then about experimental drugs and research, you know, and, and, and the rights of human research subjects. All that was like, this was another era, really in the 1950s. So, so all kinds of people were trying to figure out, wow, this drug is amazing. Maybe it can tell us how the mind works. You know, maybe, it, maybe it can be a great new tool in, in, in psych psychiatry and psychology, which it, which it can be. And it is right. We're seeing that now. Um, but at the same time, you had the government, you know, 
mean, this was the Cold War, right? There was all this paranoia about the communists, right? I mean, it, and and it was really what started this is there were reports that the Soviet Union had purchased like something like, you know, 30 million doses of LSD, like the CIA heard about this. And so they were basically, uh, you know, it was sort of like a, a Cold War around psychedelics, both the Soviets and the Americans and other countries were wondering what can, maybe we can use this drug for, you know, intelligence or military purposes. So, you know, both sides in the Cold War were doing this experimentation. Is that men who stared goats where they were creating psychological warriors trying to use like remote viewing and all that stuff? Uh, well, that was, I think, wasn't that kind of a fictional? <laughs> no, that's that's a hundred that's a hundred percent real. That happened at Fort, oh, okay. Fort Detroit. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, there were all kinds of there's all there's some really funny videos of this. You know, there's a great video of like the British were doing experiments where they gave these infantrymen LSD and they yeah. made them out on maneuvers. You know, and they and they they start like throwing down their rifles and laughing and climbing up on trees and, and playing, you know. I mean, what the army and the CIA eventually sort of learned that these drugs really don't work, right, as truth serums. <laughs> or, or or there really wasn't a clear like military, uh, military uh, you know, use for these. So they kind of eventually dropped it. But, um, you know, there were casualties along the way, you know, the, and most infamous being, you know, Frank Olson, that whole story. I mean, I don't really, you know, I, I know about a little bit about all this, but I don't really, you know, the guys who wrote the two definitive books, at least early on about this were the Acid Dreams and um, Storming Heaven. Those are the two books that came out, I think, in the 80s. Uh, about the the, the government psych, uh, secret government psychedelic research. So well, I, no, that's definitely not a conspiracy theory. I mean, I mean, some people there's a conspiracy theory out there that people think that the current psychedelic some some people on the fringe of the psychedelic movement now think that the current research into psychedelics by groups like MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, which I write about a lot in this book, Changing Our Minds. Um, that that they're part of this government conspiracy, which I think is total bullshit. So so they're you know they're, they're, that's one version of the conspiracy theory, right? But could you, could I, I don't, you tell I don't, me a little bit about Maps. Uh, well, Maps is a uh, an organization that kind of grew up in the 1980s. Uh, they were people who were what. There, there were uh, therapists who were using uh, MDMA. This is before MDMA was really became a party drug and was really well known in like the you know youth culture or the rave culture. So there were uh, there were there was an, basically there's been an underground of legitimate you know uh, sincere psychotherapists using psychedelics to help patients since the '60s, right? Some of this was above ground. And, and they started outlawing psychedelics in the 60s and it went underground, right? So th this has been going on for decades. And, and then in the 80s, there was a lot of interest in MDMA, using MDMA to help people with trauma, with PTSD. And it, was, it wasn't underground because was, MDMA wasn't illegal yet. But what happened is then, then MDMA got discovered as a party drug, right? And, and, the government, and then the government cracked down on it. So there was a, there's a guy named Rick Doblin who started MAPS, who uh, basically went on a crusade to convince the government that MDMA should be reclassified, uh, not necessarily legalized initially, but, but uh, reclassified by the FDA so it could be used by trained therapists to help people with trauma and PTSD and other, other mood disorders. So MAPS and Rick Doblin have been working diligently for now 30 years to try to get MDMA rescheduled so it could be used by you know, trained therapists, not completely legalized. Um, so that's what MAPS has been, MAPS has been doing. Now, there, there are a few people who think, oh, the MAPS is part of this government conspiracy to drug people and get them to not be political. And I mean, that to me is, is a crazy conspiracy theory. Yeah. And it's a it's a, it's a small group of people, but they're very influential, and they're you know so there's sort of a division in the psychedelic movement now. Some people are sort of 
buying into that, but well, I'm not a believer in that conspiracy theory. Is, is the overall public starting to look into now? I mean, at least take notice the fact that the whole psychedelic movement is now changing to this aspect of, I mean, I get there's a dark history behind yeah, it. Yeah, that's, oh yeah, definitely. So that's why I, you know, that's why I call this book Changing Our Minds. Which well, I'm leading way, into it. I'm leading into which, it. Which, by the way, came out about a year, year and a half before Michael Pollan's better known book, How to Change Your Mind. <laughs> that's, that's, but anyway, uh, yeah, because people, uh, th that's sort of a play on, you know, it's, it's cha by changing our minds, I mean, the public opinion is changing about the benefit, per, the potential benefits or the, the real benefits of psychedelic assisted therapy. And also, uh, you know, these things, these drugs can change our minds, you know, they can actually change the way we think and experiencing reality. And it can, in a very positive way, if done, carefully and cautiously. Can I ask an experience that you had that really changed your perception on things? Well, um, you know, I mentioned, you know, when I was in college, right, I had two, I write about this in the after, uh, in the afterward of Harvard Psychedelic Club. If you've read that book, I think you said you, yeah. have you read it? I don't know. Did, did you read that book? Harvard Psychedelic Club? Yeah. yeah so that's the yeah. one. Yeah. That's the, that's the first one. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I, maybe you remember at the end of that book, there's something about me in that book until the, and afterward, and I write a little bit about you know what inspired me to write it. And basically, I had, um, well, you know, I was 19 years old. You know, I was, I thought I knew everything, but I really knew very little. <laughs> you know, as a lot of like a lot of 19 year olds. Right? So uh, I went down. I was a uh, you know, first year student at University of California, Berkeley, and my a new girlfriend, and we went down to Big Sur, and we dropped a fairly large dose of LSD and just had an amazing experience of kind of unity and love and transcendence and which you can have, you know, on your own with the universe and the world on these drugs. I, with me, it was wrapped up with this kind of new romance with this girl, <laughs> this woman, young woman. And I became convinced that we, we, we melted together and then like for days and weeks afterwards, every time we touched, we would physically melt together. There was like this lingering, and I, so I, in my, you know, naive 19 year old head, I had this idea that, oh, that's what love is. That's what people, when they say becoming one with someone else. And I was convinced that we were gonna to be together for our whole lives and this was magic and this was wonder. And it was also a connected feeling with the whole universe, with nature. You know, the, a, a, one of the main components of a mystical experience is a unitive experience. It's almost a cliche, you feel one with everything, right? Um, but it's real, you do feel that, right? Sometimes. So anyway, so, but then a couple months later, we were up with another, uh, some other uh, dorm mates of ours at Berkeley and we had another experience, four of us with this same LSD. And I had like the flip side of that, right? I was, it was paranoia, it was fear, it was uh, terror. Uh, uh, I felt like I was shrinking and disappearing in a kind of a frightening way, right? Rather than a unitive way. So anyway, basically I had these two trips, right? One was one was wonderful and one was terrifying. And the and then I split up with this girl. And so <laughs> she said she was, uh, you know, I had too much dark energy or something, you know. <laughs> and so, but that kicked off a very difficult time in my life for just a period of a few months where I never really came down off the LSD. I mean, I would have like flashbacks. They used to warn you, one part of the, I thought it was anti-drug propaganda, right? That you can have flashbacks, like, you know, weeks or months later. If you crack your back. No, 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 flashbacks, mental flashbacks. I about to say, usually um, when people, uh, they, my grandpa always says this because my grandpa tripped on acid a lot. He's like, whenever I crack my back, I always get like an acid, acid flashback. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, an acid flashback is basically you're going to start hallucinating, you know, for no apparent reason. I mean, so there's like a there's there. It's, it's even a syndrome, uh, you know, uh, this disorder of people who some people will. The acid will kind of kick back in. And I experienced I, I used to think that was anti-drug propaganda, right? That that was that that story was put out just to scare people. Well, it actually happened to me, so so that was very terrifying because I thought I'd permanently damaged my brain. You know, I was a first year student at University of California. I couldn't read a sentence. My mind was so I could like one word in a sentence would take me off on a tangent. You know, and I'm you know first year student at Cal, right? So uh, I had hallucinations. I stopped smoking pot. I didn't take any drugs, and like for weeks I would occasionally have these 
it was sort of a temporary psychotic break, you know? Now it, it, it's rare, that's a very rare thing, but it did happen to me, but it, it's not, you know, unheard of by any means. So I, I guess I tell both those stories and that always left me very curious and also cautious at the same time about the power of psychedelics, those two personal experiences. Now, with the era where we're heading in now, where it's leading more into the area of microdosing and people having experiences that way, do you what do you, what do you think about microdosing? I mean, I don't know if it's the full benefit of giving like the spiritual trip. And I've heard amazing experiences of it, and I have heard some horror stories, but the overall answer is kind of this amazing experience about it. And I'm like, well, you don't get that from microdosing, but it does solve the problems that people experience, PTSD, depression. Um, I have a friend, her name is, I think it's, oh, I might be blanking on it. It's about 400 episodes ago. Julia Trebek, I think her name is. She leads the psilocybin mushroom um, movement in Canada uh, to help get those legalized. Yeah, yeah. Well, okay, there's a lot of misunderstanding about microdosing. Um, most of the, all of the clinical trials that are going on, and there are many of them now, with mostly with psilocybin, which is the active ingredient in magic mushrooms. So it's the synthesized version of the drug that's in magic mushrooms and MDMA, the drug I was just talking about with Rick Doblin and MAPS. That's not, they're not doing microdosing. They're doing macrodosing. The, the, the way that these drugs work in terms of a psychedelic assisted therapy is people have a profound, powerful experience, which takes a macrodose, not a, I mean, I mean, a significant dose, not a microdose. So all the research that's going on has nothing to do with microdosing. Microdosing is a movement of people who believe that taking a very small dose, right, like a tenth of a normal dose of whether it's LSD or mushrooms, or usually the two that are used, it, it's supposed to be a dose where you don't feel anything, like it, it's a subliminal effect, right? A true microdose, it, like if, if you take something and you've like just the colors seem a little brighter or you feel a little like you're a little high on psychedelics, that's too much for a true microdose. Then you should take less the next time. So that's what a that's what a microdose is, right? And but people say that doing this on a regular basis, I mean, one of the protocols, Jim Fadiman, who wrote a, a book about this, who's an old psychedelic researcher from way back and a friend of mine. Um, what you do you take a microdose one day two days off, and then the next day you do another microdose, right? And some people report, a lot of people report that they've, it improves their, in subtle ways, right? It improves their mood, it may improve uh, creativity, uh, may help with depression. Uh, I'm basically agnostic on it. I've tried it, I tried it with mushrooms, and I didn't really see much. I think a lot of it because it is subliminal, I think a lot of it could be a placebo effect, yeah. you know, which is not an issue really with a true dose because you know you're getting. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's why a lot of this, that's a whole other, this double blind placebo controlled study with high dose psychedelics is kind of silly because everybody knows who's getting the real dose and who's getting the placebo on these clinical trials. But they have to do that because that's what the FDA requires to reschedule a drug. Um, there, there is some research there's some, there finally is some research coming out with mic, with microdosing, not, not just anecdotal accounts of people saying, oh yeah, wow, man, you know, I did this and I feel so much more creative or, you know, actual uh, studies where they can try to measure uh, effects of microdosing. And it's been very mixed. And it seems to be pointing to the fact that a lot of this may be placebo effect. I'm not against the placebo effect. <laughs> I mean, if, if, it, if you think it works and it works and it makes you happier, great. <laughs> Right. But I, I'm a little skeptical personally about about microdosing, but it, I, it's kind of too soon to really say definitively. I would say you'd have to go all in and just do a trip do a macro dose or something, because the experiences I've heard of people where they talk. I mean, I've seen people that were completely atheist and never believed in religion start to become spiritual after that or believe in something. Yeah, that's not going to happen. Power. That's not going to happen with a microdose unless you're like incredible. I mean, people, the other thing is people are all very different about how sensitive they are to these and what ha it's a very individual thing. You never know what's going to happen until you do it yourself. So there, there's that part of it. But, but, um, but yeah, the microdosing is, you know, I don't think it's going to hurt. Um, a lot of people, they say they're doing a microdose they're doing what I call or other people call a museum dose. A museum dose is like just enough that you could still maybe go out and walk around in the world 
maybe even drive, although that's probably not advisable, and go to a museum, right, and look at art while you're slightly high, right? Just to get a, that's just one example, to get a, a deeper appreciation of, of art or something, right? That, that's a museum dose. That's not a microdose. A microdose, you shouldn't even have any sort of conscious level. Uh, you shouldn't have, it should be totally a subliminal effect for a true microdose. Do you think that an actual like macro dose, do you think it could actually lead to just, I mean, major strides in innovation and just progress in a lot of ways? Like we know about like peaceful, like progress in that sense. But I mean, I've heard people say like people, like, thoughts of AI um, getting linked with LSD and just getting linked with tripping. I mean, even Kerry Mullis, who invented the PCR test, he did that while he was on acid. Yeah, no, there are others, like the guy, uh, what's his name, Douglas... Uh, wrote this book a long time ago, Robbie. So excuse me, but Engelbart, I think the guy, he's the guy who invented the mouse, the computer mouse. Holy shit. Thank God for that guy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He invented the mouse and he says he got the idea for that on, on LSD. Um, Steve jobs has said that his trips kind of helped him come up with, you know, the concept of Apple. Uh, you know, so yeah, that, that, that is totally understandable because what these drugs do is they kind of radically shift your perception of yourself and the, and the rest of, in the outside world, self and other, they really can put you in, um, and, and that's why they're so effective for treating things like, can be effective for treating things like depression or PTSD or addiction. Uh, it's basically a, it, it, it's psychological and it's spiritual in my, it's that, those things are all mixed together. You know, it's, it, it's basically reimagining yourself and, and connecting with a sort of quieting down the normal, I, me, me, mind, the, the egoic self, right. That's always like sort of worried about our own kind of identity and stuff, blowing that away. You could call it ego dissolution, right. Where you. So your normal, small self kind of I, me, me, my uh, uh, consciousness either subsides and you feel like you're connecting to some cosmic higher consciousness and it, it can feel like a true self, right? Or another self. And it's that experience. And I've interviewed a lot of people, like research subjects in these clinical trials, you know, who like cured their PTSD, cured their depression, you know, cured their, uh, you know, substance abuse. Uh, and I think what happens in it's just this radical re-understanding, reimagining of how you, your sort of mind relates to the rest of the world and other people. And the, the power of that can kind of shake people out of an old pattern, whether it's like being a, you know, an alcoholic or, or depressed, uh, especially when it's done with a, a trained a guide or therapist who knows how to deal with these states. That's, I'm not talking about just taking acid and going out to a party or something. I'm talking about in a controlled setting with a, with a trained guide. If I toss this out to you, which is like a recommendation for something that maybe would be a good idea to do, would it be easier to have like individual guides and have a whole system, like a, I wouldn't say a business, but like a little therapy thing. I know people have retreats that they go to and they can try these drugs, but like, I mean, do you think it'll, one day it'll get to the point where it's on like the, a street corner where you can actually see people go in and explore? Yeah, that's what's happening right now. That's what's really interesting. I mean, there's a big debate about the whole medicalization of this, you know? So uh, the goal of the people who have been pushing for decriminalization of psychedelic assisted therapy is exactly that, to have like an, an above ground, you know, therapy centers or this therapists who are already therapists, but can basically psychedelics will be just another tool in the toolbox of therapy along with like, uh, you know, uh, traditional antidepressants, SSRIs, you know, which do help a lot of people, but don't work for millions of people, right? So yeah, just another tool. So that's starting to, I mean, there's been an underground therapy, psychotherapy thing going on for decades. It's coming above ground now. And um, the state of Oregon uh, has passed a law a couple of years ago, it goes into effect next year. So next January 1st, 2023, which will not just decriminalize, they've decriminalized all drugs in Oregon, all drugs. It's like a traffic ticket now. That's one thing. But at the same time, there was two measures. One, basically any drug, if you're cutting any drug, even heroin or cocaine, it's a hundred dollar fine, 
right? You know, you're not going to go to jail. Just Holy for, for, shit. That's already the law. That's the law in Oregon right now. Um, and, and the $100 fine, if you like agree to like, just call a hotline, you know, like for help for like, you know, recovery or addiction or something, you don't have to pay the $100. So they've basically decriminalized possession of all drugs in Oregon. At the same time, they have a whole other thing that another initiative that passed, which is setting up supervised uh, centers where people can go and have uh, magic mushroom experiences with a guide legally and they're regulating it they're controlling the quality of the mushrooms they've been for the last two years in oregon they've been setting up this system and it'll be the first in the country where you could just walk into a uh you know a sort of like a, a you know a center a therapy center they're not calling it therapy they're just calling it supervised sessions so they're it's not necessarily you don't have to have a you don't have to have a psychiatric disorder to qualify right anyone can go in there and that's going to be uh, available starting next year. So this is happening. This is going to spread across the country, unless there's a huge backlash against it. But um, this is this is happening now. It's it's happening right now. Where would you like to see, in your eyes, like the next ten years? Where would you like to see us be? Or next five years, if you want. Well, I, I I'd like to see more of these centers. You know, retreat centers. Um, I mean, I'm interested, um, lately I've been actually interested in kind of how this fits into the larger story of religion in America, right? So there are also, so there's, there are, there's this kind of more, you know, kind of psychological therapy kind of use. There's also kind of religious use. So there are churches that have underground churches that have been using psychedelics for decades, very quietly. They're starting to come I say churches, you know, sometimes not the sense of a church, like, you know, a building with a steeple we think of, but like, you know, groups of people who get together, right? But in a, in a focused kind of spiritual, or you could even say religious way, to try to connect with the divine through these substances. And that's coming above ground too. And these people will argue that because of the constitutional guarantees of freedom of religion, right? that the government has no right to uh, tell me that I can't explore my own consciousness. It's an issue of cognitive freedom, which I'm 100% behind, right? Um, and so that's also starting to come above ground. So there are two or three networks of churches that the FDA and the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Administration and the Food and Drug Administration have basically authorized to do this above ground. They're both uh, parts of, well, there's the Native American church, which is also legal for them to, if you're Native American, the, the Native American church can use peyote. That's been the case, you know, since the 70s or 80s. But now there are these other two networks of churches that use ayahuasca, which is a plant-based psychedelic tea. Uh, they're churches that are in Brazil, but they have congregations up here in the States. So that's legal for them now. But what's happening is it's broadening. So uh, other other spiritual groups can openly and legally do this as part of their spiritual exploration. So there's kind of two tracks. There's the psychological and, and the religious. And I've kind of been doing more work now looking at how this is changing, you know, kind of American religion and ideas of what religion is in this country. Do you think it's impacting it heavily? I mean, there's still like 47% of people that just choose either not to be religious or worship at home. I think it's going to change the whole right. idea. And those are the people, those, some of those people, not all, but some of those people are people that may be drawn to this because this is a whole other way of looking at, you know, I've written a lot about, um, you know, religion in America. That's was my beat on the paper for 30 years. Right. And uh, during my time there, I really saw the rise of this group of people who say they're, they say I'm spiritual, but not religious. You hear that a lot from people. That's actually, you're, you're right. Uh, uh, statistics show a, deep drop in attendance and affiliation with, you know, mainstream religion, whether it's the Presbyterian church, the Catholic church, uh, even evangelical churches are in decline now. It used to be the evangelical churches were growing, the more conservative churches were growing. Even they are like declining now. And the largest uh, religious cohort group in the country now are, we call, some people call the nuns, not N-U-N-E-S, N-O-N-E-S, nuns, as in, well, I'm spiritual, but not really inter interested in none, none of the above, right? I always hear it. The, the nuns, right? And, the, and these are people who call themselves spiritual, but not religious. So I, I've been writing a lot about those people, and it's it's a much more amorphous kind of a, of a spiritual path. 
but there are, you know, a lot of small groups, meditation groups, even like Bible study groups, you know, I mean, people who stop going to church, they don't all stop believing in God, or maybe they have a different idea of God, a different definition of God than they used to. So I think we're in a really, and you, you, you said how widespread this is like with one of your questions. It's just starting. It's just starting. I did a, a long story. It's on, uh, there's a website called lucid.news, L-U-C-I-D.news. Um, if you can post a link to it, that would be helpful. Uh, a long story about some mainstream religious professionals like, you know, Presbyterian ministers, Episcopal priests, right? Or, um, you know, seminary professors who are open to using psychedelics and uh, in mainstream religion. It's just starting. There's still a lot of resistance to it in churches because churches tend to be conservative, right, in a lot of ways. But it's just starting to happen now. I think it's going to be really interesting to see what happens in 10 or 20 years from now. I think a lot of uh, churches are going, not that they're going to be like, you know, replacing the bread and the wine at communion with mushrooms and <laughs> ayahuasca, although some already are doing that, uh, but that say there'll be, you know, like a church retreat where once a year people from the church will go and have an experience with, say, mushrooms or, or LSD or MDMA and talk about it and try to integrate it into their understanding of their faith, understanding of Jesus, you know, l l looking at this in a new way. And that's that to me, that's really interesting that how that is changing people's ideas about the divine and how they relate to that. Well, this lead probably to bigger communities, at least people becoming part of a community again, more communication aspects. I always figured that's what's what church was kind of for in the first place. The people that wanted to go to church necessarily didn't believe in maybe that definition of God or something, but they liked being around the community right, that sure, believed exactly. the same thing. Exactly. No, community is a big reason people get involved in religion. Community, you know, meaning, what's the meaning of life, you know. Also, you know, helping other people, you know, charitable work, you know. I mean, churches, I mean, churches do a lot of really good things, you know. I mean, uh, there's a dark side, of course, especially, you know, now with these nationalist, you know, evangelical kind of Trumpian, you know, churches that are getting a lot of attention. But um, yeah, it's a it's a it's a it's a time of transition. I mean, I, I wrote a book way back in the 90s or around the, the millennium called uh, Following Our Bliss, which was sort of looking at this shift of people who are looking at religion not as what's important is not doctrine or dogma or denominationalism but personal spiritual experience right a powerful personal spiritual experience with the divine as you define it right as you experience it not necessarily as the church teaches it or tells you what it is and um that that it's those people that are i think part of the spiritual but not religious crowd and and these are not most of these people are not using psychedelics. They might be using meditation or yoga or, you know, other techniques to have spiritual experiences. But psychedelics are definitely <laughs> probably the easiest way to have that, have an experience, right? Some people say it's too easy, but that's, that's not me. <laughs> what do you think about just people's, I guess, never-ending quest to try and understand consciousness. It's been a question I've asked people who literally, as a scientific study, study the area of consciousness. And hearing the reply, we don't know what it is. We have ideas, but nobody has a specific point. And I just go, if that doesn't get you interested in under trying to understand what that is, that's why there's astral projection, there's lucid dreaming, there's all these different realms of consciousness. And I pulled up an article that was on the CIA, um, one of their documents, talking about the gateway experience where they look into everything, the consciousness circle or the energy field around your head, and they had diagrams that were depicting it. It's like, so it's it's not new. This has been a revelatory old term for a really long time and we're like now starting to see at least public media attraction to it right well the, i just actually the last article i wrote for this website i mentioned lucid.news is about a new book that's uh out called the varieties of spiritual experience um uh, but one of the co-authors is one of the researchers at johns hopkins which is the leading place where they're doing psychedelic assisted therapy work um, anyway, uh, they're, they're, that's a play on a famous book that uh, William James, who is the father of American psychology, wrote called The Varieties of Religious Experience. They're calling their new book Varieties of Spiritual Experience. Obvious play on that. Yeah. 
Oh yeah. So James was, this is, so this, this was, uh, this book came out in 1902, right? This is more than a hundred years ago. This exact same question of what is consciousness? I mean, what, what is, how are we aware of our own self? Right. And, and when we connect to some, when we connect to some thing that feels like, like a cosmic consciousness or a collective unconscious, Carl Jung, this famous Swiss psychologist called it the collective unconscious. When we connect to that, are we really connecting to something that's out there like our, our brain is like a radio kind of receiver, right? Or is it all in our head? It's just a projection, you know? So the people who don't believe in the divine or the supernatural say, it's all in your head, right? You're not connecting to anything. It feels like you are, right? But it's, it's all in the brain, right? It's not, you're not connecting to some. So these are people who would not believe in like telepathy, right? Or different kinds of paranormal phenomenon. Um, and, and <clears throat> You know, and there is actually very little evidence. There's been very little research actually proving that paranormal phenomena are real. You know, the, the people have been trying to like you know prove this forever, right? Well, um, but that's the question. Like, what what is happening when you connect to this ultimate reality, this divine presence, this collective unconscious, this whatever you want to call it? Is there really something out there or not? And that and you know, science hasn't answered that question really. It's called, it's called the hard problem of consciousness. And we're really no closer to understanding that than we were 100 years ago when William James wrote The Varieties of Religious Experience. Um, so I'm kind of agnostic on it myself. You know, I mean, I'm a journalist. I'm pretty skeptical. So I don't really fall into the believer category <laughs> or, the, or the joiner category too easily, you know. I, I try and understand it. I think you could probably get caught up in your own head and a lot of stuff can just be things that our brain does that might be mixed into a batch of something like that. But it seems like, I mean, I've never taken acid or LSD, but from the experiences I've heard, it seems like it takes you out of yourself and adds you into a bigger hole, which is the world. Well, that's, I, I've smoked pot plenty of times, but that's my whenever I explain a pot experience, people go, did you take mushrooms? And I've always had a really adverse reaction to marijuana that gave me these like, and I would explain them. I've explained a couple on the show before these real psychedelic trips. And I mean, I don't know what that is, but that's my reaction to marijuana. And that's why I kind of like stayed away from it. Cause they were always horrible freaking trips, but they were something that I would explain to someone and people would just look at it. Like, you were dosed something. I was like, I wasn't dosed. It was just pot. You're, but- you're probably Robbie. You're probably very sensitive to it. You know, I mean, I, I don't like the marijuana. I get, I get kind of paranoid sometimes with marijuana. I, I don't with mushrooms or, or, uh, you know, ketamine, which I've used as an alternative treatment for depression, that's another story, but, or, or more powerful psychedelics like 5-MeO-DMT, the so-called toad, uh, the toad medicine, yeah. where it's very, uh, I, I, I never get paranoid with it, but marijuana, for, for me, I, I, I sort of get a little paranoid and a little stupid, you know, and I find that I'm not really drawn to it. But, but, but the, some of the marijuana today is so, is so strong. It's such a high THC content that it is like a psychedelic experience. It really, it really can be. Well, so, it, I have ADHD. It scared me. So, and I looked it up. Some people like ADHD and other disorders have sometimes an adverse reaction to it. And I was just like, well, it scared me off taking anything stronger than that. If I can't handle that basic and that's what everyone kind of normally does. It's like, I don't want to have like, and, and I'm missing out on that. You know, one day I might take LSD or something like that but it's that fear of not coming back, which is what gets me is like, I don't want right, to like right. trip and then you have to remember back. that you are coming back. You can feel like you've died. And, and if you go into it with that understanding and you have a guide, right. Who can reassure you, uh, it can be very healing in a lot of, a lot of ways. It really can. Um, but you know, these clinical trials that they're doing, and if that, they, when they're setting up these uh, new clinics that are just starting in Oregon, which I mentioned, you know, they're going to screen people. You know, it, it, you, you have to go, you will do a battery of medical tests or you'll fill out forms. Like if you have a pre-existing psychological condition, whether it's, you know, bipolar or maybe, maybe, maybe a tension deficit, I don't know if that would be, would disqualify you. But anyway, they're, you know, these are people who have studied this and know, you know, that if you have this kind of a pre-existing condition, maybe this is not for you. Right. And that, that's what's, that's what's, that's kind of hopeful about this is a, you're going to have, people are going to have access to these these powerful uh, medicines and experiences, but in a cautious, controlled, you know, way, 
with some care about whether this is really what you want or need or, you know, so, and also just the fact that when you buy drugs on the street, you never know what you're getting. I mean, most stuff that's sold as Molly or ecstasy on the street is not Molly or ecstasy, or it's cut with other things. In some cases, it's fentanyl, which can kill you. So the other reason that I'm very for, I'm for legalization of basically all drugs, in my opinion, is that people should be able to get access to pure drugs. They should be able to know what they're taking. I mean, the driving drugs underground is what makes them so dangerous because people are not going to stop getting high. People are always going to want to get high. <laughs> that's, well, even, that's a common mystical, a common human, uh, you know, desire. Yeah, but you notice that through history is that they hide that, that part of history. They hide that psychedelic tripping. I mean, the ancient Egyptians, they found, you know, some mummies with cocaine in their dreads that they had. You know, there was chalices that were laced with something like that. They were always hiding this era of trying to explore deeper I guess I wouldn't say religious experience, but more spirituality aspects. And that's always been throughout our history. It's been like that. They've always hidden that one aspect. Sure. In both Western and, and, you know, Eastern and, uh, you know, indigenous, you know, South American, North American culture. It's always been there. It's always, it's always been on the fringe, you know, it's, it's by its kind of very nature. It's on the fringe, but it's always been there. Yeah. It's, it's on the fringe until someone says it cured something. And then everyone's like, holy crap, we got to try that. Well, that's what's happening now. You know, there's this, uh, I mean, Michael Pollan's book, uh, it was, it came out about a year after my changing our minds. He says, how to change your mind. I mean, you know, he's a journalist too. I mean, it, it's a good book, but he, that got, had a lot of influence. It was like number one, New York times bestseller. He just has this Netflix series that's out now based on the book. So a lot of people are seeing this and there's a little too much hype and hope. <laughs> in, in my opinion, with his take on it, that I, I think my work has been, sort of more balanced showing kind of the, you know, the, I, I always include cautionary tales about what can go wrong. Uh, there are a lot of charlatans out there now, like there always are in religion or in America society in general, a lot of snake oil salesmen, a lot of con artists, a lot of uh, sexual predators, you know, there, you got to really be careful. You got to really be careful. There are people out there doing great work. There are therapists and spiritual teachers out there doing great work. And then there are, there's a real dark side. And now that it's all the almighty dollar is, you know, I mean, everyone, all the, all these, I mean, there's just a ridiculous amount of money poured into these startup companies, you know, for, for psychedelic assisted therapy, having no idea how they're really going to make money off this, but they're raising billions, the B of dollars and a lot of these companies are already tanking because people are realizing how you know this is not a simple thing to set up clinics that can legally and and you know responsibly do this work it's happening but um so so there's a lot of like miracle drug kind of talk you know like mushrooms will call cure, cure cancer or everything you know, everything whatever it is you know um and there's just a lot of hype and irrational exuberance right now around it uh, it's, there's a bubble that's already popping. The, 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 the financial side of it has already popped, but the public opinion, you know, so I think people have to be careful, a little more careful than they, I would like people, everyone to be able to experience it. Um, especially even, even if you have to sign a waiver and there's this thing of like, Hey, you have ADHD or you have bipolar, we can't give this to you. Hopefully one day they'll make it to where people can be able to experience what other people can experience without going down like a deep end. But I also don't know if I want it fully in the government's hands, but I also think that there shouldn't be a whole bunch of just clinics all over the place. I would like more focused, more refined clinics with actual, like verified people is what I'd say. Like you say, the dark side That's of what people. That's exactly what they're trying yeah. to do. Yeah. yeah. But the other app problem with it is, is, is it's expensive because it, the drug is not expensive, but the time of, I mean, for someone who does this work, a psychedelic therapist, whether they're underground, right, or at one of these emerging clinics, uh, you, uh, so you have a like maybe one or two, you know, sessions with the therapist beforehand, you know, they screen you, they get to know you, you know, then let's say you're, do, you're doing mushrooms, okay, well, that's like a six hour experience, right? So you're with a therapist, the clinical trials, there's two therapists for six hours. So, you know, think of what a therapist costs, right? At least $100 oh, yeah. an hour. Maybe three hundred dollars an hour if it's a psychiatrist, right? So you've got so you got look okay, you got you got ten hours. Then you should have like at least a few follow up sessions to try to integrate, see how you're doing, and integrate the experience into your life. That's that's the secret sauce of psychedelics. Well, uh, shit. Therapy. You... How are you how are you using this experience to change your behavior, right? So so anyway, you're talking like maybe 
10, 15 hours of time, right? So unless you do what Ron White did, which Ron White quit drinking after he went to that retreat that gave him ayahuasca. And he like, he did mention that the people that he was there with, there was like a hammock out back that you could go and sit in and everything. But basically you either throw up or you'd get the shits and you, this drug would go yeah, but out. That's a different, that's a different model than I'm talking. That's, that's the retreat center. I'm talking about a, a psychedelic therapist. It's like going to any therapist, right? I mean, it's, 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 it's not, it's not instant. The, the, the experience, the revelation might be kind of instant, but if you do it right, you're, there's preparatory time, there's afterwards, there's integration. So all I'm saying is it can cost like, you know, a couple thousand dollars to do this in that model. And it's not covered by insurance. So that's the, the goal. Uh, that's the goal. That's the goal of maps. That's the goal of the, yeah, to get, and, and that could happen. You know, if the FDA, if the FDA determines, and they're right on the cusp of doing it, um, that MDMA is a legitimate treatment for say PTSD. That's what they're looking at mainly post. And there's a huge problem with that with, you know, the military, right? You know, all these soldiers coming back from Afghanistan and Iran, uh, Afghanistan and, uh, and Iraq, you know, uh, there's a huge problem of PTSD among veterans, uh, military veterans. And that's, that's what's kind of fueling the government's openness to this. They know they've got a very expensive problem on their hands dealing with, you know, thousands and thousands of soldiers suffering from this. And if they could, if, if this is effective to treat PTSD, then they're going to embrace it. And that's, that's, that's why MAPS was very smart. I mean, the, 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 they, they, the first groups that they were kind of treating were military veterans, right? Or, or uh, rape victims, right? These are people, people have sympathy for these people, right? Our, our, let's help our wounded warriors, right? Uh, or with, with, with psilocybin, it's working with people who have a terminal diagnosis and are afraid of dying. You know, they're dealing with cancer. Even if they recover from the cancer, they might still have psychological problems from having that you know, near death experience, right? So they're showing that, so the psychedelic assisted therapy with, with say psilocybin could help those people. Again, that's a, that's a group that there's a lot of sympathy for those people, right? These are people that are suffering, that they may be dying or they thought they were dying. So that, I think those are the groups where it's going to first emerge. And then, and then there's a question of, well, but yeah, but what about the phrase is the betterment of well people, right? You don't have to be have a diagnosis, right, to a, a, a mood disorder or psychological diagnosis to benefit from these drugs. So then there's a question of, well, what about everyone else who might get some, you know, might become 10% happier <laughs> after this or something, right? I think it's going to start with people. It's going to start with a medical model, kind of like what happened with marijuana, right? First, there was medical marijuana. And now in many states, you know, it's totally legal. I think it's that's going to happen. It might take longer with psychedelics to get to the totally legal. I think we'll get there eventually. I, I can see it being a more widespread thing. The amount of time in the past couple of years, I've seen people talk about it more casually about tripping or doing something like that. And I'm in an area where it's highly illegal. So it's like, just where, where are you? I'm in Maryland. So, yeah. yeah, I mean, when I hear people talk about it, you just, it's less stigma to it. And you start realizing it's going to be like one of those things where like under the guise, when you're not paying attention to it, it's just going to become way more normal to the point where they're just going to legalize it because everyone's already doing it anyway. And I hope it goes in that direction. I hope people get to experience if they want to experience it. I think making that choice is, you know, everyone's kind of decision. It's like any kid that's turning 18 or 21 is going to have to come to grips with the fact that they're going to have to make a decision whether they choose alcohol or they choose drugs or not. They're, they're going to come across it at one point in their life and whether they get stuck to it or whatever, it's their decision to make. I think every parent has to make that kind of conclusion with it as well, too. I think the best way possible to make sure it's a great experience is making sure that it is that set and setting that they make sure that they have a someone there that can walk them through something and not be like, I mean, when I tried pot for the first time it was not a good experience at all. It was like eighth grade, you know, like hiding, waiting, thinking you're going to get caught. You know, you're, you didn't even get high really the first time, but it's always those situations. If you cause people to go underground, you put them in more danger by making them go to these, this secret right, right. location. That, that fuels the bad trip. That fuels the, the fact that you're breaking the law and you're paranoid or worried about that. You're not necessarily paranoid. You're, it's a legitimate worry. If they can throw you in jail for smoking a joint or, you know, eating a, I mean, it's kind of ridiculous that these mushrooms, which grow everywhere out of cow shit, right? <laughs> I mean, they're easy to find, right? You can go out and find them. They're just growing there. And, and why is that illegal? You know, why does the government, you know, I, I can kind of see, okay, heroin. Yeah, that's a, 
I can even see with alcohol. I can say there's my there's more reason out to ban alcohol than than magic mushrooms. You know, it's way more addictive, and more people die from alcohol. Um, but Don, I appreciate the time you've given me to do my show, man. Seriously, you've, you gave me some good advice, and um, not only advice, but just give me some good thoughts on stuff too. Because, like I said, I, there's going to be probably a point where I'm going to end up trying. You know, it. Hopefully, I you know I get the right set and setting situation, and have someone that's able to walk me through it as well too. But I think you know it's good to get this out there just so people out there listening start having a different opinion on it. You know, you're ingrained with the media or this long narrative of drugs are bad and all this type of thing. It's like a lot of people are casually doing drugs they just don't talk about it but where can people find your links uh your website your books um any social media profiles you have that you want people to follow you on uh well probably the my website is donlatin.com d-o-n-l-a-t-t-i-n.com and i have six books out there's little write-ups about the books reviews of the books i have uh on that page a stories link for you more recent stuff I've been doing because uh, I've been writing for this uh, website, lucid.news and other magazines and newspapers. So that's the best place to see. Also, I'm, I am uh, writing a, a series of articles. We're going to call it, calling it God on psychedelics for uh, lucid.news. So there's some of that. If you go to lucid.news, uh, L-U-C-I-D.news, it's a, it's an interesting psychedelic news website. They're doing some really good work and put my name in. You'll see it was about a, 10 stories I've written for them uh, and more, more, more recent stuff than the books. So. Well, I'm going to link all your links in the description, Don. It's, seriously, it's been a pleasure chatting with you. You're welcome hey, back anytime. You too, Robbie. Okay. And thanks a lot for having me on the, sh on the broadcast. Thanks for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank.